Good morning again. My name's Brad Cheney. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, and we'll be reading verses 36 through 50. You know, most of us have heard quite a few uh, dare to be a Daniel sermons or, you know, <laughs> dare to be a, a David against Goliath sermons. Um, you have this morally exemplary figure and the sermon then focuses on how we are to, to imitate them. That, that's how a lot of Christian preaching uh, works. Well, I completely, I totally agree that not every story in the Bible is supposed to be or meant to be imitated. On the other hand, sometimes they are. Like sometimes they, they really are. And I think this is one of those sometimes. Uh, I, I think the woman in this story... Really, both of the characters in this story illustrate two very common ways that people, we, relate to God through Jesus Christ. Very deliberate contrast is being made, I think, in this passage between a religious culture and a, a gospel of grace culture. That's what I want to look, with, uh, look at with you. Verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at a Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, If if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to to tell you. Whenever Jesus says that to you, you probably ought to run. <laughs> you know, he's about to toss a grenade to this man. Just a truly, I mean, a spiritual, an intellectual and spiritual grenade to him. Simon, I have something to tell you. Well, tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose... I think it's a very cold and calculated answer that he gives. I suppose, there's a supposition that I'm coming up with here, I suppose that the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. 
And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your, f- your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, what a wonderful passage we get to read today. Uh, please give us ears to hear what you wish to say to us individually and, and collectively as a church. Um, give us ears to hear. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask for this. Amen. She is most likely a prostitute, though she's never called that specifically in the story. There are a number of hints in the passage which make it likely He's a Pharisee, of course, and Jesus had a very contentious relationship with Pharisees, didn't he? I mean, he criticized the Pharisees more than any other a group or in, the, uh, in, his, in his day and his time, and likewise, they criticized him. Um, most of the Pharisees, I think it's safe to say, were fairly standoffish towards Jesus. But here is this man named Simon who has invited Jesus over for dinner, and I think the man really wants to check Jesus out. He's, he's actually, he is interested to find out if Jesus is truly a prophet. Um, I think, I could be wrong, but I think that this Simon figure is very similar to another prominent Pharisee in the Bible by the name of Nicodemus. Remember, Nicodemus also was a, he was interested. He was a Pharisee, but he was interested. He was spiritually open. He wanted to find out more about Jesus Christ I think Simon is like Nicodemus. And I said I could be wrong on this. There's one piece of information in the story which might undermine that thesis. And it's simply that Simon fails to show Jesus the customary hospitality and honor that you would expect to give to a dinner guest. Notice he uh, does not give Jesus a kiss. And he doesn't have a servant wash Jesus' feet upon entry into the house. So that's why a lot of people, a lot of commentators would read the passage and conclude that, no, this man wasn't interested. The the whole thing was a setup. And Jesus was inviting him into his house to intentionally shame him and, uh, and, uh, you know, dishonor him. And that might be the case. I, I just don't think it is. The text doesn't say one way or another. It could just as easily have happened such that you know, Jesus is there, and in all of the hullabaloo and the hubbub of uh, the meal, some of these things that customarily would have been given were omitted for whatever, for whatever reason, uh, an accidental oversight. The text doesn't say one way or another. I think that Simon was acting on good faith. I really do. He wants to know more about Jesus. So let's look at this scene. Let's set the scene. Um, you have a village dinner party. And a village dinner party was an open-air event. Uh, you would open the doors to your house, and everybody in the village would be welcome to come inside, not as participants in the meal necessarily, but as spectators, certainly. They could stand around the outside of um, uh, the dining room uh, along the wall and watch the important people have their important meal and have their important conversations. Or you could stand in the portico and look through the windows and It was okay to be there as a spectator. Uh, And in fact, it would have been kind of a big deal that you could go and, and, uh, you know, watch the village happenings in uh, in a meal such as this one. So the woman is there 
Uh, she doesn't have to dodge security guards in order to make it into the house. She's there. It's just part of the crowd, as like everyone else, someone who is watching. Something happens, though, during the meal, and we don't know what it was. Isn't it interesting how the text never tells us what came over her? Uh, she's just overcome by emotion. She starts to weep. She lets her hair down, which was a complete cultural taboo. No, no, you don't do that. As a woman, you do not let your hair down in public, especially towards a, a strange man. Um, she's, she's overcome, and she's, she makes a spectacle of herself. And I think the key in envisioning this passage is the spectacle is not pretty. I think that's when we read the story, um, we get the wrong picture. You, you know, when, okay, when you're seeing a movie, who, who does Hollywood cast as a prostitute in movies? Like, always it casts a very attractive woman, for the most part. I mean, I was thinking of Julia Roberts in, in the romantic comedy Pretty Woman. She's pretty. Uh, maybe Sandra Bullock. She's pretty. The, the picture we have in our mind is of this fairly attractive early 20-something woman who, who comes and she's letting her hair down. And that was just simply not what was going on. Back then, if you were a Jewish prostitute, if you're a Jew and you turn to prostitution, it's because you are just at the point of absolute despair and desolation in your life. You do that as an absolute last resort. You don't have any looks to fall back on. You don't have... You, you're... You've got nothing going for, for you. You're probably not attractive. And so when we read the story in this way, uh, the whole scene, I think, has changed. Um, it, she's ugly. She may be kind of nasty. And the whole thing is just is sort of a turn, like, ooh, turn your head away because it's, it's defying all kinds of social, social conventions. Uh, um, it would not have been pretty. I think it's the easiest way to summarize it. Guys, think of it this way. Imagine you're at a restaurant for a business meeting, very important meeting with you and your clients, and a woman walks into the restaurant who is clearly dressed as a prostitute. She walks in off the street, and she gets down at the feet of one of the men at the business meeting, and she starts to weep and wipe his feet and kiss his feet. Would you guys, would you guys be saying, oh, this is really cool? Like, this is nice? No. It would be very uncomfortable and awkward and kind of, ew. One other very, uh, I think, fascinating aspect about the story is the story is actually an implicit claim to Jesus' divinity. Because this story does not work. If Jesus is just a regular Joe, a regular schmo, it's, the whole thing is creepy and narcissistic. It's, it's narcissistic for him to receive this and to do this if he's a regular guy. The story only makes sense if he is somebody who is worthy of this kind of honor, like the forgiver who's worthy of this kind of honor, right? All right, there's the scene. Jesus looks on Simon's face and he sees that Simon is full of disapproval. Simon's thinking, this cannot be a prophet. Uh, he, he would not allow, the, allow this and receive this if this man was truly a prophet. And Jesus tosses the grenade and says, I've got something to tell you. And he tells him a parable of two debtors. 
One owes a moneylender 50 denarii, which would have been about a month's wage, and the other owes 500 denarii, which would have been about a year and a half's worth of wages. Now, neither of these men have the money to pay the moneylender off. Neither of them can pay. Very important. Neither of them can pay. Oh, no. So the lender forgives them both. And Jesus then asks this question, who would be more in love with the lender? Who would be fuller of adoration and appreciation? Simon thinks about it, and he gives this very cold and calculated answer. He says, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt. And Simon says, or Jesus says, Simon, I have something to tell you. You and this woman, you are the two debtors. You are the two debtors. Here you have two people. Both of them want to be with Jesus. Both have come to see Jesus. Both are in the presence of Jesus. Both are interested in listening to Jesus. Both care about what Jesus has to say. Both are interested in Jesus. But one of them is completely transformed and blown away by Jesus. One of them has this eruption of love and joy and her life is transformed. And the other is cold, detached, interested, but unmoved. Cold, detached, intellectual, and unmoved. I heard uh, Tim Keller make this point. I thought it was a really good point. Can you imagine what Jesus, or what Simon's reaction would have been when Jesus says, why didn't you kiss me? Why didn't you hug me? Why didn't you weep over me when I came in? What would Simon's reaction to that be? He would be, Simon would be, he'd respond with, you're kidding, right? Like, what, what, you want that from me? I, I thought, I thought all we were doing was having a nice little polite conversation around a dinner table. I brought you into my house. What more do you expect? We're having a nice, polite conversation. You don't really mean or expect me to embrace you and, and weep and fall down and do all the drama at your feet and receive you like that. We're just having a nice, polite business conversation. See, Simon comes to Jesus in, in an intellectual and sort of detached, orderly kind of way. Which is kind of the way that we do it, don't we? Especially as Presbyterians. It's kind of the way we do it. I mean, this woman has heart. She has passion. She has real tears. This is a woman who has moved to the depths of her whole being. And like she's making herself so vulnerable to Jesus Christ here. Um, And that is not the way (laughs) that we normally do it as Presbyterians, do we? You know, a lot of people think that Christianity or a Christian, a Christian is just somebody who studies the teachings of Jesus and tries to follow the teachings of Jesus. And that, friends, is a very Simon kind of way of looking at it. It's like Christianity is up here and it's in my head. Um, I, I think, I, I hate to say it, but I really think one of the, one of my biggest fears of what I passed on to my children in parenting is this far too cool and detached Presbyterian way of relating to Jesus. Like, do you ever worry 
that you're communicating this to your children? Like, we're going we're gonna to think about Jesus today. We're, and we're going to talk about Jesus today. But we are not going to be emotionally expressive about Jesus today. <laughs> I, one thing I can promise you is we will, we will go to church and we will we'll use some scripture and we'll nod our heads and we'll be polite. But we will not make a spectacle of ourselves. <laughs> of course not. Of course not. I think that's one of the great dangers of doing church the way that we do and, and doing the faith the way that we do. Um, and, and I love the way that we do it. Um, but it's so easy to nod our heads and have a polite dinner conversation. And we follow our liturgy, this, 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 and boom, we're out the door. And we, we go home and it's like, where is the passion? Where's the being moved to the depths of our being? Where's the, where's the making my soul available to God? Um, it's, it's, just, it's all stuck up in our headspace. <laughs> it's in our headspace. One of the things I find remarkable in this story, uh, and I've already s- spoken a few of them, but uh, you know, it's remarkable that she entrusts herself to a man, Right? Like all of her life, she has had a terrible relationship with the opposite sex. She's, you know, uneasy and, and, and used and abused all of her life. It would be completely counter to her life experience to hope that there would be a guy out there who was a man of honor and integrity and forgiveness because she's never been with a man like that before. And yet, she entrusts herself to this man, to a man. Um, and so here's what I want you to take away from the passage. If you're taking notes, write this down. A life lived in response to the person, work, and presence of Jesus will become, it will become a life of wonder, gratitude, and freedom. A life lived in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to be a life of wonder, of gratitude, and uh, of, of freedom. I mean, another thing that so amazes me about her is, is her freedom from shame and her boldness. As I said earlier, she didn't have to dodge the security guards to get into the house. But of course, that house was completely dangerous place for her to go. I mean, if you're a known sinner, if you're a prostitute, you would never go to a Pharisee's house. A Pharisee's house is a place of just sheer despise and he's going to despise you and condemnation. It is hostile. It is dangerous. She would never go there because she's condemned in her shame. It is amazing to me that she goes to that house and she does those things in that house. Like such confidence and boldness and freedom. Do you have that? I mean, somehow, and we don't know the backstory. It's clear Jesus has met with this woman before. Something has happened, and somehow he has freed her from her guilt and her shame, and that makes her bold and courageous to go to places she wouldn't dare have gone 24 hours prior to that. And then she lets her hair down. Um, So later in uh, Jewish midrashic 
readings or writings, they basically said that for a woman to let her hair down in public towards another man, some Jewish rabbis would say that that's like grounds for divorce. (laughs) That's kind of like almost taking your shirt off in public. And she takes her hair down, and it is that hair that she's wiping on his feet. And then everybody knows what the perfume is, is from, is for, don't we? What is that perfume for? That perfume is for, that's for her profession. That's the tool of her trade. That's what you pour on the bed with your clients. It, that, he, he lets himself be touched by prostitution oil? And yet it's the most valuable thing she likely possessed. And it would have, it would have completely changed the smell of the room, wouldn't it? <laughs> and it would have been so fragrant. It, it would have changed the smell of Jesus. You would smell that on him. I, so what I think Luke is trying to do is just this deliberate contrast between a religious, a cool, detached religious culture and a, a gospel of grace culture, a perfume that would have been strongly smelled. You could smell it. it it's, it's the aroma of grace. She, she unleashed in that cold place, that condemning place, the aroma of grace. Uh, I think all of us want a church, to, our, our church, to smell like that, don't we? We all want our church to smell like that. And somebody walks in, they, they can smell a reality in the room. That's what we want. So a life that is lived in, the, uh, in response to the person and the work and the presence of Jesus Christ is going to be a life of wonder. Another way of putting it, Scotty Smith, one of my uh, favorite pastor guys, he talks about gospel astonishment. Like, it is a life that will... Ev- Event, make evident gospel astonishment and freedom, a boldness, a shamelessness, a risk-taking faith um, and gratitude, a gratitude that expresses itself in extravagant love. That is so different than a religious culture. Rel- legalism in religious culture, it only says do more and try harder. How? Do more, try harder. This is so different. You know, the forgiveness of your sins through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the greatest gift in all of the universe. And it, it is not do more, try harder. Uh, it's, it's, it's to receive just this, this great amount of money that is yours. Uh, before I conclude, there's two other things. You know, Luke is the only gospel writer to record this story. I really admire Luke for recording this story. I mean, I realize he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He was being led by, by God to write it. But he's the only one who, who records this. And this story was risky. There's so much about this story that recording it, it could be misunderstood by generations later. I mean, even Jesus being willing to receive this from that woman. 
I mean, it's, it's fraught with risk. It is such a risky, he can be so easily misinterpreted and misunderstood. Is this an erotic event? Is this what, he could be completely misunderstood. And yet, you know what? He, he still does it. He, he allows himself to be anointed with prostitution oil by a woman who is completely defying social convention. And, and in a moment, as I said earlier, it's kind of, ew, this is not, it's not pretty. This is not pretty. But he's willing to receive this, which again, I, I think is the most valuable possession that she owned. That perfume was the most valuable thing that she owned. And he's, he receives that as, you know, as an extravagant gift of love from her. You notice that Jesus doesn't minimize her sins. He says that her sins are many. She had committed many sins. But he says those sins are forgiven. And Simon, the difference between you and her, you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand the gospel. You don't understand the depth of your sin and you don't understand the cost of salvation because if you understood that really, like if you really grasped that, then you would be as changed as this woman is changed. Let me conclude with a story from the, uh, the great sitcom, The Office. The second season, I think I told you this one before, but um, many of you haven't heard it. The good people of the uh, Dunder Mifflin Paper Company decided to hold a secret Santa white elephant gift exchange at their annual Christmas party. How many of you remember this one? And the rules are very simple. Everybody is supposed to bring a gift that is $20 or less. Small item, keep it small. Maybe it could be a trinket lying around your house, but keep it under 20. Michael... The crazy boss, he's not going to keep it under 20. Michael goes out and he buys a $400 iPad. He wraps it up and he puts it in the stack of presents. What effect do you think that had on the group dynamics as a result? <laughs> right? They're all vying for it. They're stabbing each other in the back. They're stealing the present. They're, they're all getting their feelings hurt. Peter Lightheart, theologian, in his book on gratitude, writes... It's a great example that not all gifts are appropriate. There is a culturally acceptable choreography for gift giving. Um, if the couple next door, who lives next door to you, left a small Christmas present on your doorstep or in your mailbox, you'd reciprocate by giving them a small gift. Well, that's the appropriate thing to do. In general, you wouldn't give them a diamond ring. <laughs> You don't give a diamond ring to someone who, wasn't, who isn't your spouse. There's a protocol. There's always been a protocol. There's a, a very clearly established protocol in the first century. It's this, this relationship we call the, 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 the patron patronee relationship. You have a, a wealthy patron, and the wealthy patron is your benefactress. She's going to make your life easy because she has all the social connections, and she, um, she's got money, and she can give you money. And so your patroness would give you a gift and then you, as a demonstration of your gratitude, would turn around and you would give an even greater gift to your patron. And you would do it publicly as a way to highlight the, the beneficence of your patron and, and show what a great person they are with the hope that down the road they'll give you even bigger gifts. So there was a clearly well-established choreography in the first century of gift, gratitude, reciprocity, 
that would be perpetuated. Why is that important? Because all of that is revolutionized when this gift is given. The gift of the Father giving his only begotten Son. The gift of the Son paying all of your debt. A gift that is so extravagant, no longer does gift choreography work. It's a gift simply that cannot be repaid by the recipient. You know, and not only can it not be paid back, but it should not be paid back. To do so, to try and pay back God for the gift of your salvation would, in essence, trivialize the greatness of the gift to begin with. I've heard you know, pastors, and I probably said it too in the past, how, you know, God has given his son for you, therefore you're to give your life in return. No, no, absolutely, absolutely not. You cannot pay him back. What is the, here's the key, what is the only appropriate response to a gift that is that great, that is that valuable? What's the only appropriate response? It's to, it's to receive it. It's to receive it in full. Whether it's 50 denarii or 500 denarii or 5 trillion denarii, it's to accept it in full. I mean, part of the genius of the parable is you ask yourself the question, who's the greater debtor? Is it Simon or is it the woman? And the answer is it doesn't matter. Neither of them can, can pay. It's, it could be five trillion denarii. It makes no difference. The fact of the, uh, fact of the matter is both of them are in the same boat. They can't pay. And the only acceptable response is to receive it in full. So, Returning to that earlier statement that I made, a life lived in the response to the person, work, and presence of Jesus will become a life of wonder, gratitude, and freedom. If you look, if you look at your life and you, and you see, that, where is the wonder? Where is the gospel astonishment in my life? Where is that freedom? Where is that shamelessness? Where is that risk-taking faith? Just go back to the gospel. And receive the gift in full. I think that's our greatest problem. <laughs> Maybe you just haven't done it recently. You haven't received the gift in full. The difference between this man and this woman is one of them understood the gospel of grace and the other didn't. One of them understood the depth of their sin and one of them received the gift. One of them received the gift. Have you received the gift? When we understand that reality and when we truly grasp that, I believe that we will individually, and as a church, you know, be transformed uh, like this woman was transformed. Amen.